And this is the fourth cycle of the apocalyptic view of history from the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ at the, uh, to the um, consummation of the age, to the um, final day when all things are set right, when judgment happens and, and um, glory occurs for God's people. Um, Revelation 14, and so we're going to have to look at that to take this in context. So the uh, Revelation 14, 1 through 20, um, actually talks about the end-time harvest of, of the righteous. So if you look at Revelation um, 14, verse 14, I'm sorry, um, you'll see there it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So we believe this to be the, the reaping of the righteous, the harvest, the end times. Uh, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes of harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. So we looked at this last week. And so basically that's the end times gathering of uh, God's people and the judgment of the non-believers. And then we come to chapter 15, verse 1, and we read this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is Finished. And so we'll pause here just a minute, and we notice that it says another sign in heaven. And so the question is, all right, so that means there were other signs in heaven. And this exact language we find only at two other points in the book of Revelation, and that's in chapter 12. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, right at the beginning, verse 1, we see that, and a great sign appeared in heaven. This time, it's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So now we know when we looked, as we went through this, this is the, the Old and New Testament church uh, that's um, both centered around Jesus Christ. And so this woman, and remember this is apocalyptic symbolic language, and so she's about to give birth. And so this is this first great sign, this woman in heaven. And then the second sign that we see is in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she bore uh, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, when we looked at that sign, what we saw with it was this is obviously the birth of Christ and, uh, and all through time you can see all the way back to the garden where the dragon Satan is attempting to stop what God is doing to redeem mankind especially through Jesus Christ but he fails at it because God has protected this plan for his salvation so the dragon is angry and the dragon now faces all of his turns all of his wrath on the church and he knows his time is short. And he knows it's a losing battle. But the more he can harm the church, the more he can harm Christians, the more he can take away any glory given to God, then that's his purpose. And that's all he has. And so his wrath and power are, are great. But he has not much ultimate power. So we see in 12.1, that's actually the beginning of a seven-cycle symbolic history of the church. Um, to the end of times, ending in this seventh cycle that we saw in chapter 14 of the harvesting. I know, I know. Sometimes you can get to sevens and sevens and threes and tens and all these numbers and stuff. Just be aware. <laughs> there, are, Seven is a big number all in the book of Revelation. Seven is woven within the book itself. So there's, you know, the seven, you know, the, the seals, the trumpets. And, you know, and these things, and it goes on and on to the great white throne judgment. And there's seven uh, symbols. And what we see is it's a retelling of the history of the church from different perspectives each time. So the seals, the seven seals, for example, were God's unveiling of history. This is God is in control of this. Only Jesus Christ is able to accomplish God's purposes for the church to the end of the age. And so, therefore, we see only Christ can, un can break these seals off of this great scroll. And then we saw the trumpets and the trumpet blast. And trumpet blast, if you're using the Old Testament to say, well, what did trumpet blast mean? Well, there are warnings to the world, to, uh, to the enemies of God and his people, that there's wrath coming. That the armies of God are coming to approach and God is in front of them and they are about to be destroyed unless they, they flee or turn to him. <clears throat> It's also a call to the people of God to have their marching orders. They're to rally. They're to come together. They're to move forward, uh, advancing to the gates of hell, and the gates of hell indeed shall not prevail against the church. So that's what we see as we see these judgments in the world, these things that are happening. Um, we're to see <clears throat> that what that is, these are, are, are warning signs to the world. All is not as it should be. Even the unbelievers will say, well, if, look at all the sin in the world. Look at all the disease. Look at all the problems in this world. God either is not good or he's not all powerful. Because if he was good, he wouldn't allow it. And if he was powerful and good, then he'd have the ability to change things, to fix things. Well, he's going to fix things. It's just not in the way that people think that he ought to because they stand in judgment of God. And so what God does is he's using these difficulties in this life for people who are condemned to be able to look around and say, this world is messed up. What's the deal? What's wrong? 
And then that's where the revelation of God comes in because it was not like this from the beginning. God created all things good and perfect. Man's sin, the result of sin is death. The result of sin is, is the thief is now able to come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life. So Jesus comes. God has provided a sacrifice. God has provided a Savior. God has provided a way to say, no, things are not like they are. But I have come as light in the world, the kingdom has come. It's growing like a mustard seed, getting bigger and bigger all the time. <clears throat> and one day all things will be set right. And when you die, that's it for your life. What did you do with it? You either be judged completely, fairly on your behavior, your actions, your thoughts, your deeds, um, and you're already born in sin in Adam, or you're adopted into the hand of the family of Jesus Christ, where we're covered by him, represented by him. And so it's the only two outcomes to this life. And so in this cycle that we're seeing in chapter 15, it begins here with this other sign in heaven. So you've got the vision of the church and the dragon, and there's this conflict that's set up, and Satan can't stop it, but he's attacking the church. And we've seen in the seven letters of seven churches at the beginning of Revelation that the church is going through terrible trials. The, the church is going through persecution. There's been uh, somebody that's been put to death. Uh, there's more persecution coming. There's more death coming. Uh, we live in a time where we can say, you know, goodness, the church is under terrible assault. And in some places it, it is under terrible assault. But we have to get careful where we don't have such a... A, um, a, a, a centric view of the kingdom of God that just what we see around us as being it. There are places where the church is growing much faster and more in depth than we are, and there are places where persecution is happening at such a great, to a great extent that if somebody suggests that we're not in the great tribulation, they would look at you and say, then I don't know what the great tribulation is. And so we see that God here, John here, sees this other sign in heaven. And it's great and amazing. <clears throat> and you see seven angels, seven plagues. There's that number seven again. It's a, it's a number of completion. It's a, number, it's a complete number, these seven plagues. You see in the Old Testament, uh, God's judging someone, a country or a people, and he's saying, um, I will send a plague, seven plagues to you. It's that seven is this complete number. Now in Egypt, they had the ten plagues. Okay, now ten is another number of completion and it's a it's a bigger I don't want to get into all these numbers and things but it, it's the the completeness of the judgment of God as we see these seven angels and the seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished there are lots of debate as to what does that mean which is the last does this mean that these plagues are something that's going to happen later in time as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ are these plagues going to be revealed more and more or is it this is the last time that God is saying in this vision these are the last of the plagues there's no more plagues after this this is the fullness of the revelation of the judgment of God now both of those can be true but what we want to look at here is <clears throat> the wrath of God is going to be spent, and at some point it will be finished. That the people that we're going to see later on, the second death is going to be something that's experienced that will last forever. But the wrath of God on this earth in the way that it's formed now, this is the final one. This is 
looking at it from the perspective of the time of the birth of the church at Pentecost to the time of this last harvesting, it's these seven plagues that are sent out. Now, notice this, because we will look and say, yeah, there's plagues. I mean, goodness, they've called what we're going through now a plague. But it's like, but that's affecting the church, too. These particularly are aimed at the non-believers. These are aimed at, we're going to see the dragon. It's aimed at the beast. It's aimed at the false prophet. These things that come that God is throwing at the evil forces of this world. And so, and he wants us to know that he is at work even now judging and putting an end to these things. And so the next question is, Okay, that's good. What kind of people ought we to be? What about us? We're getting caught up in all this stuff. The, the beast um, attacks, you know, the demonized state power. You have all these things that are happening in the world. You see Nero, you see Stalin, Hitler, all these uh, manifestations of, you know, what God has appointed in the world government to be a minister unto God. And then when they turn from God, Satan seeks to, 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 um, to take over government just as he seeks to take over the church. And so you see what happens when you get a demonized church. And you see what happens when you get a demonized government or you get a demonized religion, another type of religion that's, that's just satanic at, it, at its base. It's to steal kill and destroy i have come that you may have life and you may have it full it's the gospel so we have to understand two things the the holiness and glory of god and then if you understand that then you get an understanding of the wrath of god and then once you understand that you get a little better understanding of the gospel of the grace of god that look at what we have in jesus christ is so great because we do understand the wrath of god if we take away the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God from God's attributes, then we don't really have to worry so much about salvation. One, it's not such a great salvation. We kind of had that one a coming. We sort of, who, who, you know, the way we translate John 3, 16, God so loved the world, being like God loved the world so much. I mean, he couldn't help save us. My goodness, look at us. How could you not save us? You know, it's like <clears throat> we don't get it. We're not holy. We're unholy. We're born in sin. Um, the wrath of God rests upon us. That's what we should get, death. But instead of death, we receive grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. How? Why? And that's the question. But we see right here in this first verse in chapter 15, he sees this sign, and this is, this is fearful, what's coming. But we get this little... I guess you can call it a respite in chapter, verses 2, beginning in, in this chapter. Um, and we read this. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So what we're seeing is you get this glimmer of what the church is going to look like in heaven. So the first thing he does, and this happens all over again in, in, in the book of Revelation, where we have these, this sign that's coming down and there's going to be this, uh, 
judgment. But then there's a pause, and it says, wait a second. What about the church? What about the church? We're going to deal with the church, the believers, in a different way. So this pause, we'll see if you look at Revelation chapter 7. This is in the midst of these seal judgments where he's um, breaking the seals. And so Revelation chapter 7, there's the sixth seal that's been broken. And then the seventh seal is judgment. I mean, it's the end of the world stuff. You can easily see that this is that the world's over. But then we have a lot of more chapters to go. So that means either the God keeps destroying the world over and over again or we're going back and looking at all this from another perspective again, which is what we're doing. So in chapter 7, after this, after the sixth, um, well, let me back up just a little bit. Verse 16, it says people are calling on the, this is chapter 6, verse 16. People are calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So we're seeing that again, this vision he sees in heaven and these seven angels with seven plagues. It's coming. The wrath of God is coming from another perspective. So what happened back here from this perspective with the seals? Chapter 7, after this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds that no wind might blow against the earth or the sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the tree until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. And it lists these different tribes in verse 9. And after this, I looked and behold a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing Remember who can stand. These guys are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And we know the robes were cleansed in the blood of Christ. Verse 10, and crying out the loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb. And so we see this vision again of saints in heaven. There's these terrible things that are happening, but wait a second. I'm going to seal my people. They are protected. They are authenticated. They are set apart from those in the world. And then we have the trumpet judgments. They take us to chapter 12. And after these trumpet judgments, there's the seventh angel blows his trumpet in 1115. And uh, there's loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then they have this great time of worship. And in verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Into the world again. Again. But then, in verse 12, chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 12, verse 10, we see these things that are happening again with um, Satan being thrown down to earth, and he's attacking the, the church and so in verse 10 in chapter 12, we read, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before the Lamb. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. But we're told we have conquered. 
And so that's what he wants the church to know. Terrible things, but we have conquered. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, after it keeps going through what all is happening with the beast and the attacks on the church and the dragon, Satan, chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. We heard who those people were. There's this church that's sealed, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing in their, on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. Remember, we're going to look at it again, chapter 15. They're singing a song, song of Moses and song of the Lamb. This is it. We're looking at it a different way. There's a song that nobody could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no lie, for they are blameless. So they aren't worshiping demons. They aren't um, following idols. They are not doing these things. They are followers of Christ. So this is the 144,000. Now we get to chapter 15. And these bowls of God's wrath are about to be poured out. But before this angel comes and before these seven angels go and, and pour out these bowls of wrath, it's like, don't forget who you are, church. And so that's where verse 2 comes in in chapter 15. And he says that you are overcomers and that you are victors. And it is a major theme of the book of Revelation that we are more than conquerors. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass <coughs> mingled with fire. Okay, a sea of glass. The sea in the Old Testament was chaos and destruction. Um, in front of the temple was the, uh, the, the, the bronze laver at Solomon's temple. He made a larger um, thing of water. It's where the priests would go and wash their hands and be cleansed before they go in. So it could be talking about this. But what we kind of see here is really the idea of the Red Sea. What happened at the Red Sea where you're escaping the exodus, escaping from um, Pharaoh and slavery, and now we have our second exodus. In Christ, we're escaping from sin. And as we do so, the enemies of God, the enemies of God are following behind us. They're attacking us, and we have this great sea of chaos in front of us. And then we're out into the wilderness, as we saw they were in numbers. And it's just like these are examples for us who live in this day. But when we see ourselves in heaven... There's a sea of glass. If you've ever been out on the sea or a lake or somewhere like that, and it's just perfectly still, it's just like glass. And we'll say that. Oh, it's just like glass. And that's what this sea is. It's smooth, mingled with fire. And it's like, and people's like, oh, what exactly does that mean? And it seems to me, it can mean a few things. When the Holy Spirit is a burning fire. Um, it's also, a, he's a consuming fire. It's also judgment. So that the way this sea has become like glass is because of the fire of God's judgment on evil. And that's what has caused there to be an end to all the chaos and the strife. We have this sea and those who had conquered so he sees this, and he also sees those who had conquered the beast and its image and, its, and the number of its name. So how do you, can you see, I conquered the beast. All right, that's Satan, you know, how he's trying to get at the church through persecution and all these things. Um, its image, we see back, you know, what was the image of the beast? It was something that was set up that people would worship. So it's this physical manifestation of this power and the people like, oh, I have to have it. And if it's like government, it's like, oh, government, save me. And if you see, that's 
When you see government or power in any sense saying to the world, come to me, I'll set you free, I'll save you, and then they start identifying who other people are, this is who you fear, this is what you fear, just study history, this is how it happens, Satan doesn't have a very, it's like the water boy, you got that playbook, you know, all you got to do is he's got this, you know, read by you, just stole the book, it's like Satan has just ways of doing it, it's hatred, it's um, a desire to, um, to snuff the, the glory of God, to destroy the church, to um, degrade people, to dehumanize people, to do all these things so that people themselves become so violent and chaotic themselves that God's going to have to come back and send another flood. God's going to have to come back and judge. And in the meantime, this is what Satan loves to do. And love is not even the right word because it's just full of wrath. And somebody posted pictures of um, some <clears throat> some of the voodoo temples in Haiti yesterday. I was looking at that, and they were showing pictures of the the um, the, uh, the what would you call it? The shrines they have set up and that they use to to pray to these demons and to get the demons to do things for them. And um, and, and you would think that this would be like you know beautiful little things, and Satan's coming as an angel of light and stuff. But it's like if you look at these, they're they're dirty, nasty, disgusting things that nobody would want to get near. And that's what demons are: dirty, nasty things that nobody would want in their right minds would want to be near. And yet they turn us into that. When we follow them, that's what we become. But he appears to us as an angel of light, so you have to be careful of that. But when you have these things demanding our, our worship, demanding our obedience and our allegiance, if you are not of God and you seek things that only God can give, such as protection, health, power, peace, money, whatever it is that fulfills you on the inside, um, Satan is more than happy to give you that as long as you follow him and his ultimate plans for the destruction of the church. So <laughs> be aware when you, when you see these things because you cannot worship at that image and defeating, it says, um, those who conquered the beast, its image, and the number of its name. Remember, only those who could receive the number of the name that was receiving the mark of the beast it was, could buy, sell, and trade. And so what that means, and we get all called up today and like, oh, I can't receive that mark or I can't do this because that's the mark of the beast. Well, it may well be an aspect of following the beast, but what can't be marked by you is that you are called up into this world system in such a way that you're all about this world system and not the kingdom of God. You have to understand what it means to live as one who is in the light following the kingdom of God so that if any other power comes preaching any other kind of a gospel, you have to be able to say to that, anathema, anathema, no, this is not good. I will not follow. Oh, yeah? Well, what if you can't buy, sell, or trade? Well, you got to do what you got to do to get along. And there you go down the slope. So you have to be very careful of these things. Because it's one thing to say, I'll resist or I won't comply until it's really going to cost you. And be aware, it has cost people lately. But... And then when you do resist, are you resisting out of a sinful desire to be rebellious? Or are you resisting because I have to follow Christ? And this is causing me not to follow Christ. And you have to be, it's what a church is for too, to be able to help negotiate and go through these things. But we did not, you conquered a beast as the church. 
in its image, in the number of his name. And then they're standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold in their hands. Now this gives you the image of um, after the, the Pharaoh's armies are coming at the Red Sea. Uh, Israel is standing beside the sea and they're singing the song of Moses. You know, the horse and the rider have been tossed down and it's this victory um, song they're singing. But there's some um, scholars and, and Greek um, grammarians who say, you know, it really looks like what they're saying in Greek here is they're standing on the sea of glass. Which, I don't know, as I look at it, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but it kind of makes a little bit of a difference. It's like, it's one thing to stand around it, it's another to be on it. And it's almost as if, um, if they're standing on it, then peace, tranquility is theirs. I mean, it's... It's not necessarily what it's saying, but it quite possibly what it's saying. Either way, there's this sea of glass, and they're standing around it, and they're singing. They have the harps of God, not their own harps. God's provided these musical instruments, and we see it throughout Revelation, these harps. And they're not like, you know, you see those little things on movies or something. But it's like these are, in the New Testament, often called lyres, these stringed instruments. And they're singing. And uh, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So they're victorious in heaven. So he wanted to remind us, as you're thinking about the wrath of God, thinking about these things that are coming upon the world, you are the church if you're in Christ. And then the song they're singing is, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Now it's interesting, too, that this song... Um, none of this is from the song of Moses by the Red Sea, but there is a song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, I think it is, where he's about to die, and he's going up to the mountaintop, and he tells the people, I know you're a rebellious people, and you're going to turn against God. <laughs> so he, he sings this song of judgment, but it also ends with a song of hope, where, but those who are in the Lord shall be saved. And so you have this song of victory. It's the song of Moses the servant, who is always seeking escape, from Egypt. We got it. And now the people want to turn around and go back to Egypt. And then they won't even go into the promised land because the people look so strong and they're like, they don't want to do it. The 12 spies go in, 10 come out, and they're like, you got to be kidding me. God can't do that either. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Joshua and Caleb, the only two going, nothing's too great for God. That whole generation dies, except for Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land finally. And Moses in heaven has to be excited. And now the, that is just a minor preview of what God is actually doing in the world as the entire world is escaping the clutches of Satan, escaping the wrath of God due to us from the Garden of Eden in Jesus Christ as we now get to stand on this sea and there's peace and we're singing and that these phrases somewhat, some of these come from some of the Psalms. They also come from some of the Song of Moses and some, some of the prophets. And the first thing is, your deeds are amazing, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, to glorify your name? God is primarily about, the chief in the man is what? The chief purpose that man's created for. Glorify God. Enjoy him forever. What's God's chief purpose? You think about that? What is God's chief end? To glorify you? I mean, we'll sometimes think God's chief purpose is to save us. No. <laughs> if man's chief end is to glorify God, that's because God's chief end is to glorify God too. Why would God glorify anybody else above himself? He'd be worshiping an idol. 
He can't worship an idol. It's wrong for us to glorify ourselves. It's not wrong for God to glorify himself in us and the praises of, of his people. So that is our chief end, is to glorify God. Our lives should do that because you alone are holy. All nations will come to you and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now we know that doesn't mean every single person in every single nation is going to come to him in salvation, but people from every tongue, tribe, nation we see in the book of Revelation will come to him. So the nations do come. And it gives us great hope for evangelism. It gives us great hope for a world and ourselves. And then we get to chapter five, uh, verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. If we have more time, we go back and look in the book of Revelation. Not the first time the sanctuary is open in heaven. It's another view of what's happening again towards the end of time. The sanctuary, this holy of holies is what, how it's actually, uh, it's the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Tent of witness is the, it's talking about the Ten Commandments. This is where in the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. And so that's what the tent of witness is. And it's a witness against us. It's the witness of the things that stand, the law of God that stand against us. So it's out of this place that the wrath of God comes. But it's our salvation because Jesus took the wrath of God already on the cross before any of this happens for his people. So this sanctuary is open, and out of the sanctuary come these seven angels and the seven plagues. So this is from God. They're clothed in pure, bright linen, golden sashes around their chest. These are not evil angels. These are angels from God. And one of the four living creatures, which we've seen before in Revelation, that represent all of creation. Um, and they were the ones that, on the first four seals, he said, uh, he told the angels, go, open the seal. And he's the ones that, that one of the, the four living creatures takes the bowl of incense, the prayers of the saints that are in the altar, and he pours it out on the earth, and that's where the wrath of God comes from. So it can be that these bowls of wrath are an answer to the saints in heaven who are crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? In verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever and the sanctuary now remember this is the holy of holies it was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished and we see that two other times that the smoke fills the tabernacle or the temple Moses, in Exodus 40, when they dedicate the tabernacle, the smoke fills it. It's the glory of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the incarnated, the indoxated power, the glory manifestation of the Father and the Son and the person of the Holy Spirit filling the temple. And then when Solomon, in 1 Kings 8, dedicates the temple that he's built, uh, it happens again. The Holy Spirit's presence fills the temple with the glory of the Father and the Son. And we've been kicked out of the garden, the first temple, where the glory of God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. This is, God is light. This is the spirit of God stretching the heavens out like a what? Like a tent, like a tabernacle. So the heavens are where he indeed is. And so the, the entire overarching story, the meta narrative of the Bible is how do we get into the presence of the holy God? How do unholy people fall of Adam? He blew it. We represented in him, fallen. 
the flaming swords outside of the Garden of Eden. You can't come back in to get to a tree of life. How do we get back to enter into the presence of God? The Holy of Holies was blocked by a giant um, thick veil, curtain, and in it it had the seraphim woven in and over the mercy seat, the seraphim with their wings. And now these angels fly out of there. And Hebrews chapter 10, is it, talks about the veil has now been uh, removed. That is Christ's flesh. So the only thing that now, the way you get into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ. And Meredith Klein calls this the manifestation of the invisible heavens. So you can see into heaven now the temple dwelling of God's unchanging glory. Heaven as the permanent dwelling place of the Father and the Son and the glory of the Holy Spirit. Where Isaiah saw the throne room of God and the seraphim flying around it singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all the earth is full of his glory. And now the ascended Christ is there, exalted and lifted up in magnificent splendor. God is God-centered, and all of this is heaven-focused. The humiliation and exaltation of Jesus has opened the gates of the heavenly paradise of God for his church. That's like big news. So somebody dies, and we say, oh, they're in a better place. All right, hopefully we're talking about believers. Better place. It's like better place. That almost is, that's like too little. You need better place. They're in a better place. It's, like, it's almost like we don't believe what we're saying when we say that. We're just saying it to be comforting. And it's not a bad thing to say they're in a better place. It's a far better place. It is a place of God's glory. And it's not even yet revealed what's going to happen. So all these saints have gone before us. That are resting in the presence of God, that, that are there with God now, can see and speak with Jesus Christ, wait until the wrath is all spent on earth, where the, it's all finished, because what happens is the, the sanctuary in verse 8 is filled with the smoke of the glory of God from his power, and nobody can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of seven angels are finished. So there's this inner sanctuary of God where we're going to be able to go into where we explore the riches of God forever and ever. That's why it hasn't entered into the mind of man the things that await us. So when we start to talk about the wrath of God, we have to recognize the fact that that's what we deserve. But it's not what we get. What we get because of Jesus Christ is an eternal presence we are eternally present with the person of God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's presence somehow surrounding and within us in a more full manifestation of his glory and beauty that we can't even begin to, to think or imagine what that even means. And so when Revelation talks about starts talking about streets of gold and all this kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's symbolic language. It's just like whatever you see precious here up there, it's just like they paid streets with it. And you haven't begun to imagine it. So what we're called to do throughout the book of Revelation is don't give in. Don't give up. Things are hard. Things can be difficult. And when you see happiness and it comes along, embrace it when you can. But don't live for that feeling. Don't always chase after that feeling because that's not what this life is about. This life is about glorifying God no matter what. If, if your life, if you follow God for peace 
and happiness and tranquility and money and material blessing and all these things and those things are your guide it is the people who are able to say and I don't want to have to be able to say it I only pray if the time ever comes that we're able to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill God's truth abideth still that's what the gospel is for the church not some massage parlor I don't know why that came to me not something where everybody's just supposed to make feel better sometimes sermons ain't supposed to make you feel better except deep down they make you feel better knowing that this is not all there is fight the good fight of faith stand up for truth let your light shine in such a way that people see God and glorify your Father in heaven. That's how we're supposed to live as believers. That means when hard things happen, you deal with it different than everybody else does, the non-believers. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. We don't rebel like those who have no hope. What we do, if we see injustice, we do not fight injustice in the power of, of Satan. We fight it. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. They are love and they are glory and peace and prayer and the ability to be able to stand up and speak truth in a world where truth, somebody's got to be the, the, disc, the discordant sound in a world that's getting caught all up into one thing that they're all saying and it gets spun up until finally it lashes out in some kind of way. Somebody has to be out there going, no, that's not right, in love doing it. Not being jerks out there the whole time, but if all you're doing is focused on your pain, your problems, your sorrow, how you're just, everybody's bothering you, it's all in the end, and you're a whining victim, join the world. You're, you're a member of it. We can't be that. We are conquerors. We're more than conquerors. He gives us himself today at this table in this meal of the gospel himself and says, am I not enough? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we need to live by and cling to. Let's pray. Father God, you've revealed so much to us in your word. We fall so far short. We thank you that it's just for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's your work alone, your salvation alone. Help us to cling to it. Help us to shine brightly in this world. Help us not to be deceived. Help us not to be entranced by the, the things of this world that we would only be um, enraptured by your beauty and your glory and that we would seek at all times to be more Christ-like. We all fall short. Thank you that you love us even through these things. Empower us, strengthen us to be good witnesses of your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.